Welcome to Hope Assembly of God Online. We believe no matter the journey, there is always hope. This is a recording of our live Sunday sermon, unedited, uncut, real. So it's such an honor to be here with you all. Uh, my family, we, it's, our kids are singing in a choir today, or they'd be with me. Uh, we try to keep them, if they can, in the same kids' church over and over again. Um, so I, we live actually about 45 minutes uh, north of here in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. That's kind of our home base. And most Sundays we're in a different church. Most weeks we're in a different youth group. I think uh, for me in March, I was in like Newark, uh, Jersey City, the Oranges, all of those areas. And then but in February, I spent a lot of time in Glassboro and Monmouth. So I, I'm kind of all over the place, but our heart is that students in New Jersey would encounter Jesus. It's that simple. So uh, sometimes it's myself in a school setting. About two weeks ago, we were in assembly, and I'm just getting to share my story of, of mental illness for me and then encountering Jesus and with people. And sometimes I'm helping a student plant a Bible club in a school. Um, sometimes we're helping parents learn how to disciple their kids at a parenting conference. It looks different just about every week. But our strategy is that people would have the tools, whether you're a student, if you're a student in middle school or high school, that you'd have tools to reach your friends. If you're a parent, grandparent, uncle, aunt, neighbor, that you would have the skill sets and the tools you need to see this generation come to know Jesus Christ. That's our heart all over New Jersey. So I'm going to show you a few slides behind me. If you would check these out. This is my fam. And we are missing one new member of our family right here. We just had him. We just had him, and uh, it's pretty cool. Actually, his name is Ezra, oddly enough. Very cool. I was like, yes, another boy named Ezra. I know someone now. Uh, go ahead and hit the next one for me. So uh, our, our state is the most densely packed state in our whole country, densely populated. Uh, 1.7 million students over that, actually, and over 1,500 public schools, not including private or home schools, right? Not including that. So we have this mission field in our own backyard <laughs> Um, you don't have to cross an ocean, right? It's, you, don't, you don't need a passport. They're walking down your streets. They're walking in the mall. And for me, as you can, if you turn on the news or the media, you can see that our society is becoming more and more secularized. But every move of God has happened in times like this, every revival, and it's usually started with young people. The disciples were a group of teenagers, they were. Peter was probably the oldest, but the disciples were a group of teenagers. We always view the disciples as these middle-aged men, but they were young. I think John was about 14 years old when he began to follow Jesus. And you, ha you, you see these kids, and I don't see, oh, this generation. I'm like, man, this generation. If you walk into a Barnes & Noble uh, or to a bookstore, you'll notice one of the biggest book sections right now is witchcraft crystals, all of these things. This generation's hungry for the supernatural. They're hungry for it. They want to experience. They, they're not afraid of when the Holy Spirit moves on people. And so for me, I, I'm excited. I, I'm more not even trying to, to, to get there. I see, I see that it's going to happen, that we're going to see a harvest. So we're trying to prepare the workers of the harvest that, uh, that we're ready for it. So as we keep going, just a couple things. You'll see this. This is the ages of conversion in the United States. So 85% of people right now that claim to follow Jesus encountered him between the ages of 4 and 14. Uh, and the other 15%, 15 and onward. It's not that it's impossible to meet Jesus as an adult, but that it gets increasingly harder. 
So for me, if I'm going to spend a ton of time trying to get someone to encounter Christ, I'm going to be obedient to the Spirit. But I, for me, I've been called to invest in this next generation. Check out this next slide for me. All right. So this is where this generation gets really interesting. If, if I were to take you on a missions trip um, to the Sudan or to uh, Kenya or these other places in Africa, I would have to actually give you a culture lesson. We'd have to talk about, hey, uh, they don't, you don't shake people with your left hand. Or when you do these, make sure you do it this way. And they have different cultural practices. And for the first time ever in our country, the students that live in our homes are a different culture. It's never happened this way before. If you notice this before, uh, traditionalists, born before 1943. Anybody in the house? Tr traditionalists? Yes, I love that. It's so cool. I love it. Uh, we are blessed that you're here. Baby boomers in the house. Baby boomers? Yeah. Awesome. Gen X? Gen X are usually the loudest people in the room. Amen. Almost always. Uh, millennials, 1997. Yeah, that's me. I win that one. Uh, Gen Z, born after 97. All right. There's chunks of you. Yeah, great. How cool is this? You have every generation in this room. It's so cool. So unlike any other generation before, Generation Z is a different culture because before, whether you're a traditionalist or millennial, while we have a lot of differences in our society, we're raised in our home and our biggest influences came from within our home structure or within the school structure. And it's been that way for years. Generation Z is the first global generation. The reason is, if you go to any restaurant, what do you see a family on? You see kids on devices. So for the first time ever, our young people are being raised more by a smartphone or an iPad or a tablet than they are their parents or their own grandparents, which means they're being influenced by kids from Japan, by kids from Russia, by kids from Africa. They're being influenced by videos on YouTube, by Google. So their worldview is not shaped by our opinions. Their worldview is shaped by this. So for the first time ever, they don't view truth as you and I view truth. They view truth as they've seen. You become whatever you give your attention to. It's bottom line. Whatever we behold, we will become. And we have a whole generation that's beheld social media, that's beheld YouTube, that's beheld Google, and their worldview is this. So when, when we go to love them, to interact with them, we actually have to learn to speak their language. And I don't mean like words like dope or words like cap or like, these other things that we all use. I don't mean like that. I mean, we have to learn to jump into their worldview. Uh, number one, to avoid offense. But number two, the big thing is that we can love them. So that we can love them and show them the love that Christ has. So for, for this generation, Generation Z does not know the pain. How many of you have burned a CD? You've burned a mixed CD before. Yep. Uh, how many of you have lost the internet connection because someone picked up the phone? All right. How many, you hear that sound of like, and you're instantly like, yep, I know exactly what it is. Um, I remember, I was a little bit of a nerd. I remember when my dad upgraded from a 14.4 modem to a 56K modem, and I thought I had arrived because I could download a song like in seven minutes. And now, if you're like on Spotify or Apple Music, and it takes longer than 10 seconds to load, you're frustrated with your internet connection, right? So check out this next slide. Um, Gen Z does not know any of that. Gen Z only knows that Wi-Fi is accessible almost anywhere at this point. If not Wi-Fi, you have cellular data. Uh, they don't remember mixtapes. They don't remember burned CDs. Um, for them, technology is a rite of passage. 
And uh, I've been on missions trips. Uh, it's really interesting in Africa, the Middle East. Uh, and we've been in the middle of nowhere. And I've watched a 15-year-old pull out a smartphone and somehow get internet connection in the middle of the Sahara. I don't know how, but they are. So Gen Z only knows this, and they're being influenced globally. So for the first time ever, if you interact with a Gen Z student, don't think about it as if they know what you know, because they don't. They live in a different world than you and I live. So we have to jump into their world. All right, uh, next slide for me. And I'll, we're going to jump. So what I want you to do is, is get an idea of how their worldview is formed. And then we're going to jump into the Bible to see that the Holy Spirit's going to give us the power. And I, we'll, we'll get there in just a second. But there are three different main economic ages in our country. Now, don't, don't fall asleep on me just yet, because this part is actually kind of important. So in the 1700s and 1800s, we lived, and even in the 1900s early on, we lived in what's called the agricultural age. The agricultural age is where most people farmed or produced things on their own property. The school um, was kind of the center of the community because it was the church, and usually the pastor even was kind of the principal of the school. And this was going on until the early 1900s in, a lot, in large parts of the U.S., and there was a question that people would ask. People would want to talk to each other and really get to know each other and who, who is someone. Well, that shifted with the Industrial Age in the late 1800s into the 1900s. And it became not the, so in the Agricultural Age, the pastor is the smartest person in the town usually, usually the only person that's been educated. Now in the Industrial Age, the smartest person in the room is who knows how to do more or the boss. And you're valued not on who you are, you're valued on how much you can produce. How much can you perform? In the elevator conversation, I hear it all the time. I'll meet somebody. Hey, my name is so-and-so. OK, what do you do? And suddenly, their identity is, I'm a plumber. I'm a doctor. I'm a businessman. I'm yeah, fill in the blank. This is who I am. The industrial age, and that's most of the people in this room, we view each other based on what we do. Our identity becomes our job, right? The informational age, this is where Gen Z was born in the late 80s and onward, it's interesting. Now people are not valued on who they are or what they do, but in the informational age, the source of value is what do you think? What do you think? Your political views, your views on social justice, your views on what is sin and not sin, your view on sexual identity, all of those views begin to be the, the value system of a Gen Zer. So what happens if you, if you say to a industrial age person like myself that pastors don't matter? If you were to tell that to me, my identity gets hurt a little bit because I'm a pastor. It's kind of part of my identity. But if you go up to a Gen Zer, they don't care if you make fun of their career. But if you make fun of their view on social justice, you just touch on who they are. You just touch their value system. If you disagree with them on politics, it becomes offensive. If you disagree with them, so it was okay if we were a millennial, if we were a baby boomer, a Gen X, or a traditionalist, we could disagree on politics and still be friends. If you notice online in general, when you disagree with the Gen Zer, it's offensive to them. Now, why is that? Because they are what they think. So with the Gen Zer, they're, they're thinking like, this is how I feel about this issue. This is how I feel about this political party. Now, just to be clear, I am not saying that that's true. I'm just saying this is the culture we're diving into. So truth is offensive, just to be very clear. I always tell Gen Zers that. I talk to Gen Zers at length, and all of our conversations end up coming back to absolute truth. And I ask them, do you think there's absolute truth? And they say, of course. 
Of course there is. I'm like, all right, great. I said, so if I believe that Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, that means that Muslims are wrong and they're going to go to hell. Is that okay with you? And instantly the, if the, the Gen Zer is like uncomfortable with the fact. So truth is offensive because it points out that something is wrong. But a Gen Zer wants to let their desires and their feelings dictate their identity. They are the most anxious generation that's ever walked the planet. Uh, they are on more antidepressants than we've ever seen a generation be at this age. They have more saved for retirement than any generation before them at this age because they're very worried about the future. Uh, they are the biggest entrepreneur generation. They are not going to colleges in droves. They're not. They're actually hacking it online. They're doing different things. Um, they are not going out to giant concerts and giant sports events. They're very comfortable watching it on their devices at home. So the entire world is trying to figure out who is Gen Z. And the problem is Gen Z doesn't know because for them, truth is a moving target. And they're trying to figure it out. But I think what a great mission field. What a great mission field. But for us to get the truth and inside of a Gen Zer, in their heads and in their hearts, for them to encounter Jesus, um, we're going to have to leave a legacy in them. We're going to have to be okay planting seed and not seeing fruit for a long time. Legacy, I love this definition of legacy. Legacy is a future without you still being influenced by you. Legacy is a future without us being influenced by us. And every God-sized vision in Scripture always takes more than one generation to see God's will come about. God's vision is way too big for one generation to see. It always takes more than one, which means our efforts have to always be focused not just on what's happening here, but on the next generation, even though you and I may never see the fruit of that. And there's characters all throughout Scripture who God promised them things that they never saw to come to fruition, but we know that it did generations to come later. So this generation, just to kind of compare these two, this next slide, most of us in this room are industrial, or all of us are industrial age values. We value production, performance, and quantity. Informational age values community, engagement, and access. I'll give you a clear example. I was in a youth group a couple weeks ago um, in the north, and the youth pastor said, Andy, we're going to have like 40 or 50 students there. It's going to be great. Well, the youth night came, and there was about 10 students there. And by the way, I don't care at all. I come for one student. doesn't matter who it is, one, one family. Uh, but the youth pastor was upset because it wasn't the amount and the production that he wanted. So he's industrial age. He's viewing his success at the youth night by the amount of people. I, the Gen Zers, we ended up staying, hanging out with the Gen Zers about three hours past the youth night. They were talking about absolute truth and sexual identity, and some of them were struggling. So we were just having a good conversation about it with them directly. And what's funny is they left and they said, Andy, that was one of the best youth nights we've ever had. I got a little excited. I was like, oh, because of my, my speaking? And they're like, no, 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 it's not, nothing to do with you. They said, uh, they said, our youth pastor is normally running around like crazy, and there was, not, there was nobody here, so he just got to engage with us. They value community engagement and access to you. So I might leave as an as a industrial age thinker being like, man, that's not what I wanted, not with that. Jen Zier was like, I got to know you, spend time with you. I love this, right? Their whole world is their phone, so when a human being invests in them, it's a huge deal. Love for Gen Z is spelled T-I-M-E, always is. Love for Gen Z is spelled T-I-M-E. If you want to reach a Gen Zer, it's not through their intellect, it's through relationship. 
Relationship is the landing strip for truth. Always is with a Gen Zer. So I can't speak truth at a Gen Zer without it being wrapped in a relationship of grace that they're accepting. So I, I want to kind of um, pause there. And so that, that, that's, that's who this generation is. And now I want to jump to a passage of scripture and kind of show you, I think, that, that Jesus wants to equip us and Jesus wants to be tagged in as we try to reach Generation Z. So what I want to do, I want to pray for Gen Z, and then I want to go through a passage of Scripture. I promise I won't keep you that long at all. Uh, and I, I, my goal is that you'd leave this place excited about this generation, but even more excited that God could use you to reach people for him, whether they're Gen Z or a traditionalist or a baby or it doesn't matter. Let me go ahead and pray for you. Bow your heads with me. Lord, I thank you for this crew here at Hope. God, I pray that you give us a huge heart for young people. But God, more importantly, break our heart for what breaks yours. Give us a heart for lost people. Teach us how to reach lost people. We ask this in your holy name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. So uh, the, the biggest thing, when, when I visit youth pastors, churches, and parents, and we do trainings on how to reach Gen Zers for Jesus, uh, the biggest thing I notice is they have a bad worldview about reaching people for Jesus that doesn't match the Bible. Uh, any Star Wars fans in the house? Yes. <laughs> So uh, Yoda has this, Master Yoda says, sometimes you must unlearn what you have learned. And I think to reach Gen Z for Jesus, some of you, if you're not actively sharing your faith, I don't think you have a biblical worldview on what it means to share your faith. So I think we need to throw out our worldview. And I want to show you what I mean by throw out a worldview real quick. So um, growing up, I grew up in Southern Virginia. um, And my mom is not watching this, so I can say this. Uh, was a great cook at most things, but nothing that wasn't Southern. So my mom used to try to cook spaghetti. And on, on Wednesday nights, Wednesday night was our spaghetti night, and she would let the spaghetti get really thick on the stove and, like, filled with water. So it was really, really good, right? And that's what she wanted. She wanted it, like, real thick with water. And then, by the way, I looked forward to Wednesday nights. I would ask for this. I invited my friends over for this, just to give you my whole paradigm of this. So my mom would get whatever sauce was cheapest at the store. And by the way, I don't even know what meat-flavored means. I don't even know how they achieve that, but it does not have to be refrigerated, which is also, I'm going to try not to get this on the carpet. That'd be really bad. So my mom would put it right on here, and it was great. And then... If, if we had it in the fridge, it was, it was even better. If we had it in the fridge, my mom would grab some cheese. Let's grab this real quick. And she would grab some cheese. I'm not kidding. I'm not messing around here. She'd grab some cheese. And she'd put it right on. And so she would, um, say, no, no, you got you to understand. You got to understand. She would... She would put this in the oven, and the cheese would melt all over it, get so good. And then she would take it, and we would just go all like that. And uh, so good. So good. And uh, so I asked for that. You have to understand, I asked for that for years. And then I went to uh, Valley Forge, and I met, I'm not kidding, I met my first Italian ever. Her name was Santina. I don't think they made Italians in Virginia uh, when I was growing up. But uh, I, I never met any, at least, right? So I, I, I meet her there. And uh, we started, about two years in, we started dating. And we're dating. We're in the cafeteria. 
and I get this spaghetti from the cafeteria, and I cover it in ketchup. And she goes, Whoop! She was like, she was like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm eating spaghetti. And she goes, I don't know what you're eating. That's not spaghetti. And she goes, okay, if we're going to date, there's a couple rules. Number one, we don't eat spaghetti from cafeterias. She said, number two, we never put ketchup on anything pasta. She's like, ketchup's for hot dog, hamburgers, and french fries, and that's it. Okay, do you understand? And uh, so I went, she invited me to her house. And her family, as uh, Pastor Joe mentioned it, uh, her grandparents are from Italy. And then uh, I believe they're born there. And they, came, or, and they came over when they were young. So they, they, they spoke Italian. Um, and so they were making pasta from scratch, meatballs from scratch. Uh, not sausages from scratch, but they bought it from an Italian butcher, all those things, right? So they have all these things cooking. And when I walked in, I was like, man, this smells unbelievable in the house. I sit down at this big table. By the way, my family dinner was like five people. Her family dinner was like 38. I'm like, who all are these people, right? Like, how does anybody have this many uncles and aunts? I don't even know how this is possible. So, uh, and cousins, and there's babies, and I, it's it, lots of people. So they put this food in front of me, and they're all watching me waiting. They're wa watching. And uh, I took a bite, and literally, I felt like the heavens opened up. And uh, here's the deal. Once I had the real thing, this became disgusting. Like, once I tasted the actual thing, I was like, oh, man, what I've known for years was so gross. What's sad is I would go home on breaks, and my mom would try to make this for me. And I was like, it's disgusting. And so uh, my, my, goal is, my goal is that when we read the Bible's view of reaching people for Jesus, that you'd find your old thought disgusting. Because I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it's here. When, when we read what Jesus says about, about fishing for men, about... about reaching people for Jesus. It's not anxiety-filled. When I used to think about reaching people for Jesus, I thought about it like a Christian pickup line. I did. I felt like I walked, and I, I, has anybody ever forced the, 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 the Jesus conversation on somebody, and it went weird? Anybody ever, uh, it's just me. Okay, I've, totally got, I've totally forced it, right? So this is how I felt like most of my conversations went. It was like, um, hey, how you doing? Good, good. How's your soul doing? <laughs> And it was like, and I was like, that's so weird. Why, why am I doing this? And then it's like, hey, hey, how, how, how's, how's everything going? How's your afternoon? Good? How's your afterlife? <laughs> and then I'm like, why did I whisper? Why am I doing this right now? Right? So, like, my, my whole view, my whole view on sharing your faith was just weird. And from walking around New Jersey, these are the questions, these are the comments I hear all the time from people. I can't share my faith with a Gen Zer because uh, I don't know who I would share it with. You can see these slides behind me. Uh, what would I say? What will they think? Will they think I'm crazy? Maybe. Will I have to prove to them what I believe? Will it be awkward? Do I have to force it? I'm too busy. I don't know any unbelievers. I'm an introvert. I've heard all of these comments. And I want to encourage you that um, that was me. And I'm going to read you just one or two passages. That's it. If you allow Jesus today, he can make you into a fisher of men. And it's not about your hard work. It's not about what you know. And if you think that about reaching people for Jesus, you have an unbiblical view. So check out this, this verse. It's real simple. Come follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. Come follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. Matthew 4.19. Jesus says this to a group of fishermen, and he says, come follow me, and I'm going to take what you do, and I'm going to use it for my kingdom. If he was talking to you, I think he would say, come follow me. I'm going to make you a stay-at-home mom that's incredible for my kingdom. 
Come follow me. I'm going to make you a businessman or a businesswoman. That's incredible for my kingdom. Come follow me. You're going to be the best plumber, landscaper, carpenter, fill in the blank, whatever you do. Uh, come follow me. You're going to be the best grandparent, uh, retired person, widow, widower. Fill whatever, whatever influence you have in your circles. Jesus wants to use it for his kingdom. And here's the implications of the verse. Number one, Jesus, Jesus makes his promise. Jesus always keeps his promises. So if Jesus says, come follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men, that means if I'm not fishing for men, that I'm really not following Jesus. There's a little promise there. So if Jesus is saying, hey, if you're following me, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. So what happens if I'm not fishing for men? Am I really following Jesus? Number two, here's the encouraging part. Jesus does the heavy lifting. He says he will make us a fisher of men. Not me trying harder, not me buying better tracks to pass out. None of the, he, says, he says he will make me a fisher of men. And the last but not least, he invites us to an identity, not an activity. He doesn't say, hey, come follow me, I'm going to teach you to fish. He says, no, come follow me, I'm going to teach you to be a fisherman. Right? He doesn't say, hey, I want you to witness. He goes, no, I want you to be a witness. It, it sounds like it's not a big deal, but it is. One is an activity we participate in. One is an identity we bring with us everywhere. Okay? So uh, we're going to, Mark chapter 5 is one of my favorite verses to look at. Uh, it's Mark chapter 5, verse 1. And it says, so they arrived, this is Jesus and the disciples, they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out of the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. So quick question for you. Who pursued who? Did Jesus pursue the demon-possessed man in this passage, or did the demon-possessed man pursue Jesus? Well, if you read Mark chapter 5, Jesus gets out of the boat, and the demon-possessed man runs up to him. But if we rewind just a little bit into Mark chapter 4, a lot of times in the Bible we start in the middle of a story if we're not careful. At the end of Mark 4 it says, On that day when evening had come, he said to the disciples, Let's go across to the other side of the lake. And leaving the crowd, they took with him in the boat, just as he was, as the other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they awoke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, he rebuked the wind, and said, Peace be still. The wind ceased. There was a great calm. And they said, and Jesus said, Why are you so afraid? Do you have no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And they said, Who are you that even, even Mother Nature, even the wind and sea obey you? Now, let me show you this map real quick. So check out this picture. So they were in Capernaum, and they were on their way to Bethsaida, which is a few miles across the lake. But the storm comes up and blows them 13 miles off course. So it blows them 13 miles off course to the region of the Gerasenes. So when Jesus lands on that shore with his disciples and, and the, that demon-possessed man comes running to him, it may seem like the demon-possessed man was trying to find Jesus. In my opinion, and according to scholars, I think Jesus had an appointment with that demon-possessed man. Jesus has complete control of the waves and the sea. 
And some people say, well, he was knocked 13 miles off course. I don't think Jesus gets knocked off course. I think Jesus knows exactly where he's going. If you're hearing this, whether you're in the cafe, whether you're in this room, wherever, Jesus is pursuing you, has been pursuing you. If you're ever thinking that you're the one pursuing him, you forget that he does not mind causing storms. He does not mind doing what he needs to do to find you, and he will. And so Jesus is pursuing this man. They end up on the shore, right? The disciples are exhausted because they've been, Jesus is good. He got a nap, right? (laughs) Jesus is doing fine. Uh, The disciples are exhausted. If we read this again, it says 5 verse 1, Mark. So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put in the chains, he broke them and snapped them from his wrist. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves, cutting himself with sharp stones. It's amazing. They, they tried to shackle and chain him. Sometimes we try to handle spiritual problems with a physical solution. We do sometimes. It, it happens. I'm going to fix this. This man had a spiritual problem, and every time people tried to handle it physically, it never worked. When you share your faith, I want to encourage you with something. It's a spiritual battle, not a physical one. C.S. Lewis says this. C.S. Lewis says, you do not have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. I'll say it again. He says, you do not have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. In other words, we are spiritual beings that wear this, right? When I share my faith, this is not about how eloquently can I describe it with my mouth. It's very much spiritual warfare. It's a lot of people think, man, somebody is saved by what you said. That's not how it works. In the Bible, it says that nobody comes to Jesus unless the Lord, the Spirit, draws them. Right? It's spiritual warfare. And with this man, people tried to fix it physically, but Jesus just showed a few verses earlier he can control the waves. Now he's going to show he can control everything spiritual. And here, so it says, day and night he cut himself. So this guy is covered in scars and scabs, and he's cut himself. He's covered in, he has chains on him, a long beard. He's howling. He runs at Jesus. If you're a disciple and a naked man covered in sores and screaming runs at Jesus, do you try to protect Jesus or do you run back on the boat? (laughs) I'll be real. I'll be like, Jesus, I forgot something in the boat. Hold on one second. I'm just, I'll be right back, Jesus. I'll be right back. I just forgot something for a second. This dude's creepy. And um, so so this guy, right, says in verse 6, when Jesus was some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, bowed before him. With a shriek, he screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, the son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. So Jesus essentially gives permission for these spirits to enter pigs that were nearby, right? Uh, so it says the evil spirits came out of the man entered the pigs, the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs, I shouldn't laugh, plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. I've been a youth pastor for like 15 years. So all I see on this, I picture some shepherd boy nearby hearing a squeal and looking over, and 2,000 pigs are jumping off of the cliff. I'm sorry if you love pigs. It's just, I read this, and I'm like, man, that's so much barbecue just right off the cliff. It's okay. in verse, 14, in verse 14, the herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside advertising the cell they had on pork. 
pork loin, pork shoulder, I'm just kidding, <laughs> spreading the news as they ran. People rushed to make sure they had some barbecue. Um, my, my, my daughter told me a dad joke last night. She said, Dad, what do you call two pigs having a tug of war? I was like, I don't know. She said, pulled pork. I was like, yes. It's my girl. It's my girl. All right, so, sorry, couldn't help it. Uh, soon, a crowd gathers around Jesus, and they saw a man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed, perfectly sane, and they were afraid. <laughs> so they're not afraid to chain him when he's shrieking and naked, but my man is clothed and sane, and like, oh, what's going on? I'm like, guys, let's figure something out here, right? Um, so... He's sitting there, and Jesus doesn't just save us. He restores our dignity. He didn't just save this man. He clothed him, right? For, like, it's a, that's a great picture of social justice. By the way, Jesus did not come for social justice. He came, he came that he may lay his life down for the justice that we should receive, right? But the byproduct of following Jesus is always loving people like that, right? Jesus first, their needs second. So good. Um, in 17, the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. So Jesus, they're, they're saying, Jesus, this is weird. Our pigs are dead. This man is completely sane. We don't want you here. We, we don't want you here. So Jesus is getting on the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed begs to go with Jesus. And this, this is the last of our passage today. But Jesus said, no, go home to your family. By the way, when I first read that, I pictured like a kid in middle school had been bullied by his friends, and some kid protects him. And he goes to the kid that protected him and said, can I sit at your lunch table? And the kid's like, no, go sit. At I was almost like, Jesus, let the guy go with you. Like, 13th disciple, it's not that big of a deal. It's an unlucky number, but Judas is going to go away. So you have 12. I don't know. It's just in my mind. Um, so he says, go home to your family. Tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man went off to the 10 towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things that Jesus has done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. Just to be clear, he had no degree. He spent 15, 20 minutes with Jesus. He didn't know theology. He probably didn't memorize any scripture. He just said, hey, you remember that guy? He used to scream at night. <laughs> that was me. And uh, look, I'm, I'm clothed now. I'm sane. I met a man named Jesus. Hey, hey, hey come here, come here, come here. Uh, this is what happened. Do you, and I'm sure somebody was like, how did it happen? I don't know. I just know that I met a man. And in Scripture, this story parallels the woman at the well, by the way. The woman at the well, we don't know her name, but she goes and evangelizes her whole town. The demon-possessed man, we don't know his name, but he's going to go evangelize the whole area, right? We don't know their names. These are people in Scripture that are named by the affliction they used to have. The woman at the well, she shouldn't have been at the well at that time. She was embarrassed because of her infidelity. The demon-possessed man, we don't know his name. Two chapters later in Mark... A few months later, two chapters, Jesus comes back to this area, and they're lined up by the thousands to come be healed by Jesus. I think he did his job pretty well. And what's crazy, when we fast forward 50 years after Jesus' resurrection, after Easter next week, uh, the Roman Empire was persecuting Christians like crazy, like, like burning them at the stake, uh, Nero, all, all, it was really terrible things doing to Christians. But there was an area of the Gerasenes where this was, where the Roman Empire had trouble establishing an encampment because the hills and the limestone were bad for chariots. Um, so they said this area was one of the safe havens for the Christian population on earth, and they sent missionaries from there. They copied scripture from there. So 
We, we all read this story where Jesus gets turned off course in the storm. Jesus has a way of knowing that that one demon-possessed man that nobody thinks can be an evangelist is going to be the best evangelist in Scripture. And not only that, is going to reach people by just being a witness of what Jesus has done for him. So I, I just want to encourage you today. It is not about what you know about Jesus. If you're thinking, Pastor Andy, one day when I'm a better Christian, I'll share my faith. This dude had 15 minutes in. I promise you're okay. Well, you don't understand. I'm not the best witness. Neither was he. Well, I don't know that much. Neither did he. But if you have had an experience with Jesus, and you know that you are different, that you are saved, that he is your savior, you have the ability to say, like, Jesus, use me. And what I love about Matthew 4.19, Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. You don't have to try harder. You don't have to be a different person. He can use your introversion. He can use your lack of influence. He can use the fact that you live alone. It doesn't matter. If you say, Jesus, make me into a fisher of men, a fisher of men, he will. I absolutely promise you. I'm going to show you just, just one quick personal story and then I'll, I'll pray you guys out. Um, I, so I, this has been really true in my life. I could tell you stories for the next couple hours. If y'all are at lunch, you can ask me more stories. But um, every time I pray for an opportunity to share my faith, Jesus gives it to me, just to be clear. I, I can make that statement very honest. Every time I pray, Jesus gives me one. Two weeks ago, I asked for an opportunity to meet my neighbor. He randomly asked for my help inside of his house. And before I know it, I'm in his house. We're talking about Jesus. There is a school... Uh, I went, I, there's a school that we wanted to plan at Washington Township High School. I'm not sure if anybody knows. It's a little bit north of here. But at Washington Township High School, we wanted to plan a Bible club there. And we began to pray. And I, I had met a lady who had been praying for that school for months before. And I'm at a student rally. And I say, hey, students, if anybody wants to start a Bible club at their high school, you can come see me afterwards. So three young ladies come up to me and say, Pastor Andy, we want to start a Bible club. I was like, that's great. So good. What school? Washington Township. And I literally almost fell over. And they were like, why are you so excited? I was like, because we've been praying this in for months. It's one of the largest high schools in New Jersey. has no presence of God there. And these th three girls just launched it and had 50, 60 kids come out. Wow. And now they're having uh, just a large presence of God. And our big thing is not just the club in the high school. Our big thing is that they would get connected to local youth groups. Right? Club in the high school is great. Them learning to serve the local church way better. Right? So every time we pray, so I want to be clear. The difference between you evangelizing people or not is prayer. It's a spiritual battle. Will God give you an opportunity and you may have to open your mouth? Well, sure. Or you may have to text something or invite something. I can't encourage you enough, and Pastor Randy did not tell me to say this. You have Easter this, this upcoming weekend. It is the best day in the entire year to invite someone to church. A lot of people, our Christer friends, are already going to be there. Like, they're already planning on Christmas and Easter going, so, like, they, they might already be there. Uh, I, would I said Creaster. Sorry. Some of you are like, did he say Creaster? I call people that go to Christmas and Easter Creasters. Sorry. My, my, my own vernacular. Uh, but people come out, and uh, it's as simple as posting it on your social media, inviting people in an email, and do not let the thoughts go through your head of, this will never work. Well, it's not up to you. It's not physical. It's spiritual. If you pray, God's going to do amazing things. It's unbelievable. So... Uh, last thing, I'll put this away, guys. I promise I'll put the spaghetti away. It'll be done. Um, burn it. <laughs> so uh, the, when you go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a prayer over you. My prayer is that you would just pray this prayer. 
Lord, make me into a fisher of men. He will do it. Lord, give me an opportunity to share my faith. Pray prayers like this. Lord, make Hope Assembly a beacon of light for the community. Help us to welcome people. Lord, send us broken people who need you. Send us women at the wells and people that are like the demon-possessed man. Lord, show us, help us to throw out our old view of evangelism and grab a hold of yours. Any, any hikers in the room? Any big-time hikers? I love to hike, right? So let's say we're hiking, and we're on the edge of a cliff right here, right? And let's say both of us fall. Both of us fall off the cliff. I'm a pretty big guy. Let's say I grab a hold of a small vine, and you grab a hold of a tree trunk. But I am very confident in my small vine. I'm very secure. I'm like, it's going to be okay. Who dies? Me, who's very secure in my vine, or you who are terrified and screaming, holding onto a trunk? Who dies? I hear both, okay. So I die because we're not saved by the strength of our faith. We're saved by the object of our faith, right? I'm not saved by how much I love this vine. I'm saved by the object. My neighbor, one of my neighbors is a Muslim. He has probably more faith than I do in the wrong object. He's very disciplined. He knows what he's doing, but it's misplaced. Even if you have this much faith, a faith of a mustard seed, that God could use you in this, it doesn't matter how terrified you are. <laughs> it doesn't matter that you're like, I'm going to die. I can never reach people for Jesus. All you have to do is tap Jesus in. Just tap him in. Lord, make me into a fisher of men. But in, in your head, you're like, I'm not worth it. You don't stop. Those are all lies from the enemy. Jesus is going to make you into a fisher of men. Even cooler, I want to see a whole generation of young people come to know Jesus. And your prayers is the beginning of all of it. We're going to pray for you. Lord, I just thank you for Hope Assembly today. God, I pray that we would learn to trust the object of our faith, that we'd learn to trust the gospel. God, I, I pray that truth, Father, would permeate our hearts that we'd be excited to reach this generation, excited to share our faith. God, I pray that we would never see a Gen Zer the same way, but that you'd break our hearts. God, increase the amount we pray. Lord, show us what to pray. Lord, lead us. Lord, thank you for this church. And may we see lost people be found through these people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Hope Online Podcast. For more information about Hope Assembly of God, go to www.godgivesyouhope.com or download our app in the App Store.